You're just not supposed to get me crying before I get up here. That, that's very nice. Thank you. I'm Gary. I'm not calling. And up until now, I've been real glad to be here. Story of my life. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what the hell else are you going to say? I mean, <laughs> jeez. Ah. Did I say I was Gary and I was not going? Okay. Forgot everything else. My dry date is the third day of December, 1964. And anymore, I wonder if I'm announcing that because I'm bragging. It doesn't matter. That's what it is. And uh, you set up the meeting getting the, the Al- Al-Anons irritated with us, just first thing out of the box. Before I forget, I, I truly am grateful to be here. And Todd and Chris and all you people have just busted your tail to put this together. I thank you. I really do. This is a privilege. Julie and I were driving over here yesterday, and I says, I sure hope this is an opportunity for us to see at least some or most of the people we've known from this part of the country since we came here. And just quick story. I'm an old-timer. Old-timers are allowed to tell stories, aren't they? Okay. We moved to Indianapolis in uh, the fall of 1977. We wanted to get there in time for the blizzard. And... and, uh, New Year's Day night of 1978, uh, the Cincinnati Young People's Group had lost their speaker, I think, and they called uh, Julie and I, and we went down there as last-minute speakers. And That was kind of our start with uh, some of the people here in southwest Ohio that were getting sober and that sort of thing. And I don't see any of those exact people here now, but it's sure fun to run across them as they come across them. And through knowing, through throwing Matt and some of these guys around here, and Laura, I don't see where she is right now, and some of those that have been around her for us and done what we learned to do in Denver a long time ago since we got here, there's been some pretty phenomenal changes in AA around here. And uh, uh, there's just some powerful AA members around here, and you people are very fortunate. I was impressed with the amount of sobriety in the room. Anymore, you go to, I go to a meeting, and because I, I, the only guy I've had more sobriety than I have had at a meeting a while back is a few months ago, I was with Clancy. He told me to keep coming back. Uh, <laughs> but there's some good sobriety here in a, a long term. You guys are very lucky that they're still coming out and going to meetings. I don't see that very often. I think it's great. Let's see. I've got to get you out for a nap before breakfast. All right. There was this Al-Anon lady back home <laughs> that uh, had just started going to Al-Anon. I don't know if you heard about her or not. But she's going to these meetings, and she's learning how to, how to deal with her husband and, and uh, you know, let go of love. For you alcoholics out there, you haven't lived until you've been let go of <laughs> with love. Now, I don't know how it works for you, Alan, but uh, Julie and I have a grandson that's having a terrible time out there. At the moment, he's got 60 or 70 days sober and all that. But I didn't let go of him in love. I was sick of him. 
And I got a hunch that's what you mean when you say you let go of love. But this lady had gone to Al-Anon and learned a little bit about that and how she had to quit, quit hounding the guy about his drinking and that sort of thing. So this one night he comes home, and she meets him at the door, and she's all dressed up. I mean, she's looking good. She's got her nicest outfit on and all that. And she takes him by the hand and invites him in and takes him to his, his favorite chair and asks him what he'd like to have to drink. And, you know, and he's, he's, he's kind of waiting for the club and... and uh, it doesn't happen, so she brings him uh, his favorite drink and, and, and all that, and then she comes and gets him a little later and brings him in and sits him down for if all the meals he could have would be the one he'd pick every time. It was just a wonderful meal for him. And after it's done, he, she takes him back and sits him down and brings him a glass of wine, goes back in the kitchen for a while, and then she comes out and she excuses herself. She goes in another room. She comes back out in her sexiest negligee. And she kind of sits down in the arm of the chair she lives in, you know, and shows him a little leg there and uh, <laughs> says, you want to come back in the bedroom with me? And he looks at her and he says, well, I just as well. I'm going to catch hell when I get home anyway. And I love the approach here of family recovery. I've got to tell you why. Uh, I'll tell you a little more detail, but our years in Denver, when we first got down there, it was Julie and I, and we were young. I'd been sober four years time I got there. And we had three little girls, and uh, <clears throat> we're thrown in with the Denver young people, and we're one of the few couples that are married there uh, with all that. But we were turned on to some meetings in Texas, and that sort of thing, and we would go down there, and they really did this AA Al-Anon thing together, and they did it wonderfully well, and they showed us how to do it, don't, don't they? I mean, uh, with that, and we got into more and more of that of this family thing as time went on. We had a uh, a great deal of this, and now we moved to Indianapolis, and uh, boy, it's lucky they're in the same room together, and uh, with that. And so we're doing the same thing. But what scares me about all this is uh, a really good member of my home group, uh, a young man that's just really sober right now and doing the right things, been through the book, taking his men's and helping people. And that came to me the other day and he says, why do they wait till 8 o'clock to start the A meetings? And I said, so they can go home and have dinner with their families and come back like that. And he said, I never thought of that. I think about it. There really, there doesn't seem to be that many of us coming in, still a, an intact family, at least almost intact, sleeping on the same roof. And that scares me. So when I see something like this going on, and, and, and the Fellowship of the Spirit in, in Colorado, that's a conference where the Al-Anons and the A's are on the same committee and, and meet every other month, every year, you know, throughout the year to put this thing together. And, and they're all a very big part of the whole thing. And, and it's great. And I'm glad to see it. And uh, a great deal of fellowship and love and fun comes out of it. And uh, keep it up. I'm proud of you. I think it's great. Uh, on the third day of December 1964, it was about a month before my 25th birthday. And, and I had uh, had a little chat 
with Julie and her parents. I wasn't living at home, but I'd been invited back to the house. I thought I'd got away with something because I called the house and told Julie I wanted to see the kids. And I thought if I could get my foot in the door, because currently it was time out for bad behavior. And, and she said, sure, come on down. And, and, and I, I, I get there and I go in the house and her dad was there. <laughs> you had that conversation with him, with her dad? And, uh, and so we talked about what we were going to do with me. And I, I, you need to know something. I was really tired. Uh, I, I had taken a couple of pretty severe beatings. I'd recently run a little Plymouth Valiant up the back end of a cement truck, and, and uh, it just kind of had a string of bad luck. <laughs> and, and, and they seemed to have caught me at a good time. And... and uh, we didn't know what we were going to do with me at that time, and they talked about me and my drinking in particular, and they missed a whole bunch of things I'd done both before drinking, during drinking, and after drinking, and you understand how that goes in a minute. But uh, we decided that the best thing for me to do was go to this Wyoming State Hospital, which is 400 miles west of Cheyenne, straight line, and... and uh, and because they, that was the only thing they knew to do with an alcoholic at that particular time in 1964. And uh, we, uh, I said, okay, I'll go. And I looked at her dad. I said, if you'll take me. And he says, well, I'm not going to take you, but I'll take you to the bus station. And he did. And uh, I got off the bus a couple of times, and I bought a pint and got back on it, and I finally made it to that nut house. And uh, and I really didn't know what I was getting into. And I was at a place, I think, uh, certainly emotionally, but, but uh, my thinking was is I had to do that because there's nothing else I can do. And the hole in my belly, the wind blowing through it, had been horrible. And the only time I could get enough to drink to quiet it down had been a long time ago. I couldn't do it. I'd drink and pass out. And the minute I'd wake up, just a little while later, it was there. I couldn't I couldn't run from it. And so uh, I get to this place, and the start of my sobriety began there. It began with a cop who watched me get off the bus and stop. And that nut house in, in, in Evanston... It's a semi-mountainous town, and the nut house sits kind of halfway up the mountain, and it's an old granite structure, and, and, and it, it, pretty austere. It looks like I ought to come out of one of Stephen King's movies. <laughs> and, and I stopped in the street, and I'm looking at it, and this cop came up to me and said, Are you going up there? <laughs> How do you know? Uh, and I said, yeah, and bottom line was he, he had a couple things to do. He came by and got me and uh, took me up to the door. And, and, I, and I got in there. And what happened after I got in there seemed to be completely out of my control. It, it really did. And they put me on, on the – they asked me a couple of questions first because I was the youngest alcoholic I think they'd seen walk in that door without somebody uh, with their foot behind them or something. And I uh, – Todd, will you bring me that bottle of water? i got sitting right there. Um, thank you. I had, 
They asked me if I, if I was there for my al- the alcoholic treatment program there. And I really didn't know why I was there. But that sounded better than the alternative. And, and so I said, yeah, I think so. And so they detoxed me over a few days. And that was just in a little square room with a window like that. And you'd look up there and there'd be somebody looking at it at you with their nose pressed against the glass. And they gave me some things there that they no longer give today, and uh, and I kind of went went through the process, and I got out, and I'd been in there for like a week, and that was a little long. For the, they said they wanted to observe me, <laughs> and then they put me up on the alcoholic ward, and that was kind of the start of things for me. I got educated quickly there. I had been drinking since I was about 15 years old alcoholically. Uh, I had sampled enough of the stuff I could get a hold of around where I grew up. I was raised on an experimental farm outside of Cheyenne. I wasn't the experiment, Chris. It, it, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I was around a pretty rough bunch of characters and all that. And so I, I was occasionally around booze because they'd leave a pint sitting somewhere or the cowboys would be coming through and they'd be drinking or something like that. So <clears throat> I'd always kind of been around it, but I'd just experiment here and there. But uh, uh, about the time I was 15 years old, I found ways to get more, 16 I guess it was. And the first time I really found out how it worked is uh, I know I was 16 because we drove from Cheyenne over to Laramie to a state basketball tournament. And we got some guys to buy us some some whiskey, some Four Roses whiskey. And uh, uh, one of the other guys I was with picked up a couple of girls, and uh, we had the whiskey in the car and the girls in the car, and we were taking off for the boondocks. Struck me several years after I was sober, we were heading for the boondocks with the girls in the booze in the car and didn't know what to do with either one. (laughs) Didn't have a clue. (laughs) Passed the jug around, and it wasn't long before they had to take it away from me. And all that stuff changed in my life. All that fear of being around and not being a part of and all that went away. First time in my life I had nerve enough to even talk to the girls, much less make the grab that I made. And uh, they they decided they are going to sober me up a little later and took me to this truck stop, fill me full of coffee and didn't sober me up, but it woke me up. And uh, I took a poke at a big cowboy and he slapped me around pretty good. I was always doing that. I, I, was, I was a fighter. I wasn't a winner. Uh, <laughs> Julie and I dated, uh, again, with occasional timeouts for bad behavior for the, for the most part of our high school years. She was a year behind me in school, and uh, I, I think it was that immaturity that attracted her to me. I, I me to her, I don't know. Other than that, she's had it made in our marriage for all these years. <laughs> Tell you more about that, too. We had three children in rapid succession. Three little girls, beautiful little girls. My youngest one was, what, about five months sober when I got out of that nut house? Five months, yeah, she was sober. Five months old. Uh <laughs> Uh, when I got a nut house, and that's my first memory of her. I somehow knew she was there, but I had I got no memory of that little girl until till she got out of there, and I'd been in the nut house for 
for four months. Oh, she was older than that. She was seven or eight months old. And uh, from there, things kind of started happening. What I learned in that nuthouse was I was an alcoholic. Pat did such a wonderful job of describing what a real alcoholic is. In case you didn't know it, you've had some super speakers here today. Haven't they been great? Damn. Mm. And I caught on to that a little bit. I understood uh, uh, that I was powerless over alcohol, and what that really meant was just what Pat talked about. I can't stay away from the first drink, because once I do, you got no idea if or when I'm going to stop. So, so once I start, I'm in trouble. I just can't do it. I can't stay away from it, and I'm in trouble if I drink it. And, and uh, I understood that part. I could really relate to that part in there at, at uh, 24 years old and pretty well beat up and, and, and all that. I, I knew what happened when I drank. And uh, so I, I caught on to that. I caught on to AA because they would march us out of the alcoholic ward down to a, a meeting room on the first floor. And you'd stand at the window and you'd look at the cars drive in from Salt Lake City or Evansville and, uh, or Evanston. And, and uh, you'd just look at the cars. And I remember doing that. We'd stand there with the guys wondering what was going to happen when they came in the door and all that. And, and I remember looking at one guy, Joe, and I said, Joe, they can't be alcoholics. Look at those cars. <laughs> they got chrome strips on both sides. <laughs> One-piece windshields. <laughs> I hadn't been familiar with anything like that for a long time, particularly that Viad after I crawled up the back of that cement truck. What happened there is I got my physical health back pretty quick. Uh, it didn't take too long. And I'd gone in there like about 128 pounds. And uh, <laughs> when you were talking, I remembered that. Uh, you know, I was so scared if I walked fast, my legs whistled. It was, it was crazy. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> and I came out, and it wasn't long in there. They taught me to eat again and all that. And I, and I, I grew up physically a little bit and uh, was going like that. But I'm going to these meetings, these AA meetings, and I'm hearing people talk about their life not drinking. They talked about God, and I'd quit listening. They'd talk about any number of things, and I'd quit listening now that I think about it. But, but somewhere in there, I got a hold of enough to understand that I, ha I didn't have a chance if I drank. And somehow I had to find a way not to drink. And I remember they would say, uh, uh, if you don't take the first drink, you won't get drunk. And I thought, boy, that's stupid. <laughs> no stuff. That won't, I won't go. And I knew I didn't have a chance of not taking that first drink. I just knew it. I, I, I believed it from the minute I got here. I don't know why. I'm not that bright. I don't catch things the first go around, but I caught it then. So my first acquaintance with AA was in that nut house, and it was a program of attraction because had I not been attracted to that meeting, they'd have sent me to a different ward. And that other ward had bars on the doors and pretty rough-looking characters in there. And one day I was sitting down there during that week, and I'm sitting in the, in the uh, canteen drinking coffee with some of the, some of the uh, other algies in there. All of them were older than I, substantially. Round tables just like these. And they got to talking about what they were going to do when they got out. And I remember thinking to myself, because these guys were talking, they were going to go back and get the, the ranch back. They're going to go get the family back. They're going to go get the business back. They're going to try and get a job back. I'm in a room full of has-beens. 
that struck me I'd never done anything. <laughs> I was, I never was. <laughs> and it seemed to be my turn to talk. They came around and they were sitting there looking at me and I heard myself say, I have no clue what I'm going to do when I get out of here. All I know is I never want to take another drink. And I heard myself say that. I promise you I had never thought that before that incident. It hadn't been to my mind. never had. And, of course, I qualified to be a member then, but I didn't know that. But, uh, and that was pretty much the way it was for me. I knew I couldn't drink, and, and I knew that I was pretty well going to have to hang around Alcoholics Anonymous. And when they let me out of that thing uh, after 16 weeks in there, they'd set up this deal where uh, they'd send me to college. Uh, it was a free ride. They'd buying my books and, and uh, paying our tuition and giving us enough money to maintain Julie and the kids. And that beat hell out of finding a job. <laughs> uh, and so uh, that's what we did. And we ended up going to school in Laramie. Real quickly, uh, I, I went through college in Laramie. I took a degree in accounting in three years in the summer. Because when I stopped being real busy, I was in real trouble. Because I had to be with me and I'm bad company. The hole in my belly, the wind blowing through it was at least as bad at three years sober as it had been the month I stopped drinking. Because I didn't have any kind of a program. I was still suffering from untreated alcoholism. Probably had been through as good a treatment as the country had to offer, the professionals had to offer in this country. Incidentally, they don't do any better now than they did in that nut house back then. The odds still seem to be rolling out about the same. Uh, and maybe a little worse because they're kicking God out of the jitter joints. But, uh, I caught on that I had to hang around AA, and I was probably going to spend my life with you people. Now, that wasn't my first choice of who I wanted to be with when I... I got out, but it became that, and it certainly is now and has been for many years. It didn't take, didn't take long for me to fall passionately in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. It's still my passion today. Our, our youngest daughter is still annoyed that that's been my passion all my life because she thought we'd have had a lot more money if I'd have been more interested in work uh, or a career or something like that. And as it turns out, looking back, I thought I did. But every time I got enough money that we could afford it, the bill seemed to be closely paid or almost paid, we went and did something in AA. And effectively, we've been doing that till today for 40 years. Uh, we lost one of, one of our, more, our more famous members of the Denver Young People's Group just exactly a year ago this month. With that, who wrote down that he picked me as his first sponsor because I, I was a family man who seemed to love this fellowship more than anybody else. I think that's a hell of a compliment for what it's worth. I, I, I'm so glad to have that in writing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with that, but, but I think that was true from clear back then. I felt that, and, and I love everything about this. Finished, got out of there. We went straight to college. Went to AA in Laramie, where at the University of Wyoming. And that went something like this. I, I found it quickly. The, the, the AA group in Laramie met twice a week, one on, on Mondays and, and Fridays when somebody else showed up. Uh, I had the good fortune of having them make me secretary because I really needed the money. And, and uh, uh, 
I made amends for it. <laughs> went back after I got into these steps and went to that meeting. And uh, before I got before the meeting started, I was going to attend the meeting. And then during the meeting, when I got a chance to talk. I was going to make amends for taking the money and pay some back. And old Frank cornered me before the meeting started. He says, "You know, he says, you know how well this group was doing after you left. How well this group has done since you left." <laughs> There always seems to have been enough money for anything we needed to do. And he never put it together that I was stealing the money. So I got the setup. My friend that went went up there with me, he was just laughing like crazy. He thought that was hilarious that I'd been set up that way. But anyway, I got off track. They met on, and I would go down there. I got myself to be secretary, and there you made coffee. And I would take books there to study with because very often I'd go in there and I'd make one of those 30-cup pots of coffee. And I'd sit down and nobody else would show up. I'd have 30 cups of coffee to drink. (laughs) And I had my books to study. And I'd look across the street at the Buffalo Bar uh, at the window. We met in the second floor of an old corner drugstore that had gone belly up. And, uh, And I'd sit in that dusty room and I'd look across at the Buffalo bar neon lights that blinked on and off saying buffalo <laughs> buffalo the b was out it said buffalo <laughs> buffalo and i'd grab their arm of the chair and my knuckles would turn white and i'd say please god don't let me drink i can't drink i can't do it i don't want to drink and that was my program for the most part for, for those three years in the summer. That's what I had. Every once in a while, other people show up. In fact, that Frank showed up that caught me later. And, and I remember he came in one time, and Frank had been in and out a lot over the years. And this particular time, he's on a hot streak, and he'd been sober for a few weeks. And he said, I know what's different this time. He says, I've taken the third step. He, he said, I, I, I turned my will and my life to the care of God, and, and I said that prayer. And the following Saturday, Frank came down drunk. And I thought, I'm not messing with that third step. (laughs) But the last time I saw him, he was sober again and (laughs) had the group's money. Uh, (laughs) I finished college there in three years in summer because I couldn't take any time off. I couldn't stand it to be with myself. That was my program. Every once in a while, we'd hear some people from from Greeley, Colorado, would drive up, or people would come over Cheyenne. But I, I I never caught on what was going on. Took a job with a big oil company that put us in Denver, and, and uh, I started scrambling for meetings in Denver. And I found one down on the south side uh, that was just because that was close to where we were living, and I attended that for a little while. And I was by far the youngest person in that meeting. And they'd pat me on the back and see, gee, Gary, isn't it wonderful you got a hold of this deal so young? You didn't have to go everything that we went through, go through everything that we went through to get here. And I got to thinking, wait, well, I, I just nearly died out there. I don't think I can do this again. And uh, I was a little resentful of them for a long time, but they were well-meaning, I think. And uh, I remember one night Joe and I left that meeting, and we went out and were bitching about it because we thought they had to change a number of things. We thought maybe the first portion of the fifth chapter could be rewritten. We thought, 
And somebody suggested to us that we go try the Denver Young People's Group. They said it met down on 16th Street near the Denver Post. And you might want to try going there. And that happened to be Joe's wife, and she was really irritated with us. And Joe got all puffed up, and he says, All right, Gary, let's go there. The girls there have got to be better looking anyway. And that's why we went. <laughs> and they were. Uh, and we got there, and, and it, that was the beginning of a life-changing experience for me. I walked in at four years sober, and I thought that I probably had seniority in the room, and I didn't. Had I had, it wouldn't have made a lick of difference. Because they didn't listen to me at all, because I said some really dumb things. And did some really dumb things. And, and uh, we attended that meeting for a while. We had another meeting that met up at the York Street Club that Camille talked about on, uh, on Sunday nights. And that was one of the biggest meetings in the city. And uh, remember those, Camille? We'd go in there, and you, had, you couldn't go unless you could smoke about two packs of cigarettes in about 45 minutes. Uh, God, it was all. And you'd walk in like that, and it'd just be jammed full of people. And, and people would come in to see who was going to come in next, because it was crazy there. And, and we'd have a meeting, and we were together. I think if the young people's group did anything, they were together. And they were always together. We did everything together. I mean, we just did it. Hanging in a bunch like that. Yeah, it's not like you didn't go on a date by yourself or, or something like that on occasion, but we were together, and it was it was a wonderful thing. I mean, one of the guys had disappeared, and we'd go hunting him down. And Camille, you were wrong. We didn't take Jimmy to the city park to beat his ass. We didn't do that. <laughs> you want to hear about it? Jimmy, Jimmy uh, is now 30 years sober or, or more, and uh, that, but he was having a tough town time back then, and he'd go in and out. He, he came into our house one time and drank all our rubbing alcohol and whatever else we had back in the, I don't remember, what, but Julie had real liquor in the kitchen cabinet. He didn't even think to look in there. Uh, <laughs> And Jimmy was at a real disadvantage because his uncle was also named Jimmy, same last name, who had a great deal of sobriety and, and was a very well-known long-term sobriety guy in, in AA there. And here little Jimmy comes along and uh, got this thing, other thing going. So one of the members of the group, Lee, tells Jimmy after about the 50th time Lee, Jimmy comes back, he says, Jimmy, he says, you go back out and I'm just going to beat the stuff out of you. Spell stuff differently. And and not much long later, up by the hand of hope, you look down the alley and here comes Jimmy. And he's literally just coming down the alley just like that. Lee goes out there and just beats the stuffings out of him. <laughs> Lee's sober, or Jimmy's sober. I don't I can't tell you that, that did it. <laughs> we had to go get Lee and pull him off of him. Uh, and uh, uh, that is not a recommended 12-step routine. <laughs> <laughs>